We make our way to Luke chapter 23. We'll be looking at verse 32 and following Luke chapter 23. And Lord, we ask that you would open again your word to our understanding that by your spirit you would teach us your truth, that you would bring conviction of sin, the need to change and that we would be awed by the wonder of what you have done to provide salvation in the name of the Son. By the Spirit, I pray that we would prosper in this feeding upon your word as we come then finally to the table and receive these elements as believers in Christ who have identified with you and are striving to live for your glory and honor. Please prepare our hearts in this time together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I'd like you to travel with me, if you will, in your mind's eye to the warm spring evening in Jerusalem on the night that Jesus of Nazareth was betrayed. Jesus shares that last supper, the Jewish Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room There's a lengthy and intense session of instruction, and then Jesus leads the small band into the dark of night. They wind their way through the city streets, past homes, teeming with Passover pilgrims and their hosts. And then they exit through the city wall, through a gate in the city wall, descending down to the brook Kedron. They cross that brook and then they ascend on the eastern slope upward again to the Mount of Olives and find refuge there in a place known as Gethsemane, a garden. Judas Iscariot leads a mob of religious leaders and their enforcers and they arrest Jesus. They march him back to Jerusalem under the cover of night and assembled in the high priest's spacious home, the Jewish authorities interrogate and condemn Jesus in an illegal trial in the middle of the night. Early the next morning, they deliver Jesus to the Roman authorities and they demand that he be executed. Eventually, the Roman governor of Judea unjustly condemns Jesus to death and he's paraded through the streets toward the place of crucifixion. We come then to pick up in Luke chapter 23 and verse 32, the account there, verse 32 of Luke 23. We learn here from Luke's gospel that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Luke identifies these two others as criminals. The Greek word literally is evil workers. That is a generic term for lawbreakers. Matthew and Mark refer to them as robbers. So these are not petty thieves who stole a leg of lamb from the open air market. They, were, they didn't pinch a rug from someone's house when the owners were gone. These were really bad dudes. They may have been Jewish loyalists who led a daring attempt to rob a Roman arsenal or the like, or maybe the home of a Roman authority. They may have just been simple grave robbers or highway 
robbers, something of that like. We don't know who they were. But whatever their crime, it was serious enough for Rome to say, these men must be executed. We're going to take them out. And whatever the crime was, we learn in verse 41 that they were not innocent. They were, so they weren't innocent victims of Rome's callous lust for order at all costs. They were robbers. Their crimes were sufficiently heinous as to deserve execution. But before we move past them here, this verse, let's just stop for a moment and think. Two others, two others, put to death with him. Isn't that just like God? So unexpected. So what we would never do. We'd never muck up the scene this way. I mean, give Jesus the stage. This is the first half of the most important event in human history. And you're going to put two guys up there with him? And all four of the gospel writers say, one on the right, one on the left. Look at them and see them. Why would the Father who ordains all that comes to pass providentially determine that Jesus will share the stage with these two guys? We know first, it's a hint toward the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12, which we've read earlier here this morning. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now, there'd be a lot of ways of numbering him with the transgressors all by himself, but there's probably something to that. But there is more to come. So hold that thought. Verse 33, they're brought to the place called the skull, that is a rocky outcropping that resembled the shape of a skull bone. This place was not chosen for its morbid shape, but because the Romans habitually staged crucifixions where everybody would see them. So it was right outside the wall. It was right by a gate into the city wall where people were passing by and would all see and would all fear mighty Rome. The skull, Golgotha, was probably located where, what, in the place now canopied by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, a site ruined by the trappings of dead ritualism and sappy mysticism, but it's probably the place. And they crucified him. We say those words so easily today. How comfortably we speak them. But that hides the horrors that the word conveys Crucifixion was designed to be the most shocking, the most torturous execution imaginable. The upright post was seated in the earth, and then Jesus was forced to lay with his bloodied, lacerated back on the ground. His arms were then stretched across the crossbeam, and spikes driven through his wrists to hold the body up and pin it there. Then the crossbeam put on crooked stakes, lifted into the air, his body hanging from those wrists. 
and dropped into place at the crossbeam or nailed to it, different configurations and different methods. The three men thus convulsed with pain. Severed nerves screamed. Muscles cramped with no means of relieving them. Dehydration, the loss of blood, produced desperate thirst. Insects feasted on the flesh, on the blood, and attacked the eyes with no capacity to shoo them away. It's almost beyond imagination. But in the midst of these tortures, we read verse 34, that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The they, probably verse 33, they crucified him, was a reference to the Roman soldiers. And there in verse 34, they cast lots to divide his garments So likely he's thinking specifically here of the Roman soldiers. It seems that he's praying specifically for these executioners. They have no idea who he is or the injustice they are inflicting on the only sinless man that has ever lived. There were others who were participating in this event who knew who he was, at least knew his claims. These Roman soldiers knew nothing and he prays that they would be forgiven. Now notice, it's a bit subtle here, and we can miss it easily, but Jesus doesn't forgive them. He prays that the Father will forgive them. In fact, the Greek imperfect tense indicates that Jesus repeatedly prayed this prayer from the cross. It may be that the Father answered this prayer by preserving the soldiers from the just penalty of this atrocity which they could not possibly perceive what they were doing in the big scheme of things. But ultimately, the Father would answer this prayer for anyone who came to repent and faith in Him. It seems at least one of the soldiers was tracking that way by day's end, according to Matthew 27, verse 54. So speaking of the soldiers, perhaps specifically, he speaks of all that God would forgive all who turn to Him. Now think of it here. Let's pause again. Jesus labored in prayer for the forgiveness of men who were torturing him in a horrendous miscarriage of justice. Think on that. As I ask the question, Christian, what possible reason could you give for refusing to pursue forgiveness with one of your own brothers or sisters in Christ? in the face of this forgiveness. Christian, what wrong has any believer or unbeliever committed against you that is worse than the injustice and torture that Jesus is here suffering? But whether you are a born-again believer in Christ or still resisting His salvation, let us all recognize this. This is how Jesus relates to sinners. Father, forgive them.
by your grace, lead them to repentance and trust in you and forgive their sin. As the Lamb of God, Jesus hung, dying as a sacrifice in the place of sinners. And he prays that God will receive that sacrifice as payment for the sins of all who repent and put their trust in him. And so we must ask, have you personally received the gift of God's forgiveness, won on the cross and secured by the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? Have you received that forgiveness? He extends it to you. While suffering intense torture, Jesus thinks of the good of others, but in verses 34 through 39, we witness how others respond to him. We see the people mocking and belittling Jesus, beginning at verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they, while he is speaking this, cast lots to divide his garments. So the soldiers who execute Jesus, he, I mean, he's dying the most torturous death imaginable, and they're playing gambling games on the ground below to split up his clothing. It's a scene of vile disrespect. Verse 35, we find the Jewish onlookers and the religious leaders as they mock and belittle. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The phrase here, but the rulers, uh, we're just a misstep a bit here from the original text, but should read, but also the rulers were mocking him. And if there's any question whatsoever, just read Matthew 27, 39 to 43, makes it crystal clear that those who were just walking by also ridiculed and mocked him. And so the soldiers join in, the people join in, the rulers join in. You say you are God's son? You say you will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, then save yourself. You've come to deliver Israel, start by delivering yourself. What a fool, this man. It's not found here, and it's intriguing what each gospel writer chooses to include and to exclude, but it's not mentioned here, but we should note, Matthew 27, 44, that both robbers joined in this ridicule, hurling insults at him, both of them. We read again of the Roman soldiers and their disregard of Christ in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. The inscription was sheer derision, and it emboldened the soldiers to join in. They were soldiers. They were not robots. That means when the day is over and you go home, you want to believe that the person you executed was guilty. And so they join in in this ridicule. They know nothing about him, but they join the process. As they say, this man is useless to this society. And we trash him with our words. Included with this derision is one of the 
criminals that's hanging with him. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The Christ, the promised Messiah, his response indicates a degree of sophistication and knowledge of the Old Covenant Scriptures. He has some sense of the promises of God. Or he would not have referred to him as Christ, as the Messiah. Hold that thought and we'll return to it. But it's really chilling, is it not? The only way a crucified man could breathe was to pull up on his wrists, to stand up on the feet nailed to the cross in excruciating pain, to lift oneself up to fill the lungs with air. Every breath involved that excruciating addition to the pain that was already there. And this man invests that pain to fill his lungs to blaspheme, to curse this one hanging next to him. Save yourself, Messiah. What he and others fail to understand is that Passover lambs do not save themselves. They die to save you. As time passed, the other criminals, the other criminal that was hanging next to him studied Jesus carefully. You learn a lot about someone by how they die. And as he watches, he hears what Jesus prays. And he hears what Jesus says. And he takes note of what Jesus does not say to those who are mocking him. People just passing by that have nothing to do with this. Soldiers that know not what they're doing, but are torturing him to death. The authorities who stand around and mock him, who were responsible for putting him here. The innocence that he doesn't defend. You learn a lot by watching someone die. And as this man listens to Jesus, as he observes, as he watches, his perspective begins to change. As his life ebbs away, his heart is strangely warmed, and suddenly that warmth of his heart turns to fire. And he comes to Jesus' defense Verse 40, but the other rebuked him. That is that one criminal hanging on one side rebukes the other criminal saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? I think that means something like, brother, look at yourself. You're suffering the wrath of God. What right do you have to pass sentence on someone else? You're ridiculing him. Oh, you're hanging on a cross. Guard your tongue. But notice verse 41, where the man's growing perception of reality leads him. We are under the condemnation of God, verse 40, and we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He arrives at two crucial convictions. They're crucial for us as well. The first 
is that he is a sinner suffering God's just judgment. And the second, Jesus is sinless, suffering injustice. Now, let's remember, we come back to the thought, these men were Jewish men. They, by what they say, are clearly schooled in the Old Covenant promises concerning Messiah. Now, they may have flunked out of synagogue school. They may have been really bad kids. They may not have been upstanding citizens. They certainly were not now. But that doesn't change the fact of what Israelite boys would have learned about Messiah growing up in that land. And they show some degree of knowledge of Messiah as king and Messiah as king in an age to come. They know that Messiah will reign, that Messiah will come to save his people. And so, verse 42, this man whose mind is changing radically about who Jesus is, he had himself reviled him, but now says, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a request that's so stunning that liberal commentators love to say, this is fictitious. This didn't happen, which is what liberal commentators do whenever they run into the new birth. They got to deny it somehow. It didn't, he didn't really say that. It is indeed stunning. And he did say it. He knows Jesus is dying. He knows he is dying. Yet he believes Jesus will reign as king. The robber is placing his hope in the age to come. Not in this age, not with what's happening now. He's trusting in the Messiah of Scripture and trusting the promises that he will reign over a new age. So there must be, in some sense in his mind, a trust and a reliance upon resurrection. There's no question where this day's ending. He's gone, and Jesus is gone. But remember me when you enter into your kingdom. So the age to come is breaking in upon the man's soul. It's enlightening his being. He seeks salvation not in himself. He seeks salvation not in the moment. He seeks salvation outside of himself in Messiah's future reign as prophesied in Scripture. Whatever his home life, whatever the synagogue lessons, something stuck. And he puts it all together. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He asked to be with Jesus then and there as he suffers with Jesus here and now. There's something that sounds so right about all this, isn't there? A what foolishness. What foolishness to imagine this man appealing to his good deeds. To appeal to his family connections, to the fact that he attended synagogue in his youth and memorized some scriptures. 
This man has nothing to offer. He has no merits to claim. Hopeless in himself. He throws himself on the merits and saving grace of Jesus. His desperation is so earnest, he even calls Jesus by his first name. I mean, everybody called him Master, Rabbi, Lord, Sir. He just calls out in his pain, Jesus! Well, the cynic enters in here, and we'll welcome him to the stage for a moment. He's going to say, well, 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 what else was he going to do? Is he going to appeal to the Roman soldiers to pull him down? I mean, they're not going to pull him down and patch him up and send him on his way. Was he supposed to appeal to Jesus' disciples? They have no power whatsoever to deliver him, and they know he's dying justly, and they wouldn't deliver him anyway. And it was Passover. Jerusalem was under the heaviest guard by the most powerful empire on the earth. There was no chance a group of Jewish zealots were going to show up and pull him off the cross. And again, they wouldn't. He was dying justly. What do you expect for such a desperate man? I mean, Jesus was the only one he could throw himself upon in his desperation. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And Jesus is the only one you can throw yourself upon as well. Unbeliever, you who are not born again and a follower of Jesus Christ, you who have not let go of your life and embraced him as your Savior in repentance of sin and trust in him, you may want to fool yourself to think you have options. You have no more options than this dying criminal. None. Religious ritual will not save you. It won't prove you to be a good person in God's sight. Your parents, your church, your efforts are useless to gaining entrance into the kingdom of God. They're useless. You're no different than this guy. Your sin has nailed you to the cross of eternal death and your only hope is to throw yourself unreservedly on the mercy of Jesus Christ alone. Your only hope is to receive as a gift through faith alone the forgiveness of sin that Jesus secured for his people by dying in their place and rising in victory over death, sin, Satan, and the hell that you deserve. The hell that we all deserve. That this man recognized, I deserve. Jesus, remember me as a sinner when you come into your kingdom. Our only option is to come as a sinner deserving God's judgment to come to the King of Kings who offers us mercy and forgiveness and who earned that mercy, who earned that forgiveness by His mercy. I'm so thankful for verse 43 that it doesn't end there. Yeah, we'll see. 
We don't really know what Jesus thought. He comes out just as this man comes at him, speaking his first name and pleading to be delivered into his kingdom. He says to him, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus would indeed remember the penitent robber when he established his kingdom, but Jesus also promises the man that he will enter paradise that day with Jesus. So as the corpse of Jesus and the corpse of the repentant robber were removed from their crosses, their spirits, their immaterial being was reunited in paradise. Paradise is related to that Hebrew word Eden. So that day they entered the celestial garden, the celestial Eden where Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand until he returns to earth to establish his millennial kingdom. The repentant robber left earth in agonizing pain, torturous thirst, condemnation, and humiliation, siding with the one that everybody was against. But that same day, that same day he entered paradise where all pain and sorrow and despair, where all disease, war, hatred, strife, sin, and death are forever gone. He did not deserve to be there. He entered only on the merits of Christ, but he was there. And he is there today because he threw himself on Christ alone for salvation. And awaits now in that intermediate state with a presence and I believe a temporary physical body. He awaits the resurrection of the dead and will forever be in the presence of the Lord on the promise of Jesus. So the question is, how do you relate to him? Are you with him? Have you trusted in the salvation that Christ alone provides? Early church father Augustine of Hippo noted that one of the robbers was damned that no one would presume upon God's mercy and the other robber was saved that no one would despair. Be warned. One of the robbers was lost. If you do not turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not throw yourself upon Him alone for mercy and forgiveness, you will join that robber in hell, eternally separated from Christ. You'll eventually get what you want. Know Jesus. Do not presume upon the mercy of God. Don't walk out of here doing that. He owes me. I've earned it. I'm good. We're lost. We're hopeless. Don't presume. Trust. But also be encouraged. For the other robber was saved. It matters not who you are. It matters not what sins you have committed. Jesus sacrificed his life in order to pay the full punishment of sin. And the mercy and the saving merits of Jesus are greater than all of your sin. That's guaranteed. 
His payment will cover the sin of all who come to Him in trust. It will never, that mercy will never run out. So don't despair. And then, if you can in clear conscience say that you are depending on Christ alone for salvation, then it is here at this table, in the ongoing rite of the church, that we proclaim He is Lord. His blood has washed away my sin. I commune with Him. I commune as a redeemed person by His merits with a redeemed body of believers. Here we identify with the spirit of the repentant criminal. And we say, just as I am. With no other plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Father, prepare. Now I pray the hearts of those who have trusted Christ as Savior, who have identified with Him in believer's baptism, who are walking by Your grace and fellowship and not rebelling against You. Bring us here to this table as we do to identify with this redeemed thief, a robber, but Lord, eternally so, to identify with Christ crucified and risen. Draw our hearts to Him and to one another as we now gather around this table as Jesus commanded us to do. And as we as a church display the victory of Christ by proclaiming His death until according to Your promises, he returns. In his name we ask it. Amen.